Planning on traveling this summer? Make saving at the pump part of your plans with two times the fuel points from Harris Teeter. It's easy. Download your eVIC coupon, and for every dollar you spend with your VIC card, you'll get two fuel points. That's up to $1 per gallon on quality fuel at participating BP and Harris Teeter fuel centers. Download your eVIC coupon today and save money at the pump all summer long with eVIC and Harris Teeter fuel points. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, James goes over his 100 greatest movies of all time. What's going on, everybody? It's James. This is going to be my 100 greatest movies of all time episode. Anthony just posted his last week on Tuesday. Now it's time to go over mine. Just to be clear, this isn't my 100 favorite movies of all time. It's what I consider to be the 100 greatest movies of all time. Unbiased, just pure objective selection. This is what I believe to be the greatest 100. And um, Anthony's list last week was really interesting. I loved a lot of his picks. And I'm sure a lot of you had to put several of those films on your watch list like I did. I haven't seen all the movies he had talked about. I've seen most of them, but um, that kid is an ultimate film buff even more than myself. And Anthony's voice also had more cracks than all of the sidewalks of New York City put together, so I'll try to do a little better than that. It sounded like me talking to my crush in high school, which is why that probably didn't work out. But anyways, he did a phenomenal job. We loved his list. And let's get started. Let's just dive in. At number 100, I have Snatch, which was written and directed by Guy Ritchie. This came out in 2000. I think this changed the game for English and UK Great Britain crime films and just had this – Guy Ritchie's films have, have this energy to them and, and speed and momentum. It reminds me of a lot of like Scorsese and Goodfellas and Mean Streets. I think you could say Guy Ritchie is sort of like the UK version of Scorsese, obviously not as accomplished as Martin Scorsese, but the style, it's very similar. I think his movies are very fun, funny. This movie's got a bunch of great characters. I mean, Brad Pitt's in this as a gypsy and everything, so I think Snatch is a pretty underrated movie. Was, for me, I, I want to get a Guy Ritchie movie in this list. It was either this or Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels. Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels, that's his first film, I believe. Also really good, but I think Snatch is just a little bit better. He's honed his craft a little more in this film. I think it's probably his best film in his filmography in general. Moving up to number 99, we have Cinema Paradiso. And this is an Italian film, came out in 1988, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. And so this film, it's a great movie about falling in love with film and cinema and escapism. And it, it kind of, if you've never seen it, it kind of shows you why you maybe fell in love with film and you have such a strong connection to it. And it's about this young boy who's inspired, and this film is also inspired by a real projectionist who influences a young boy who's escaping his life to in the movie theaters and then... Uh, pushes him to become a filmmaker in his in his adulthood, and it's it's a really special film. I think it's it really just captures the heart of what all film lovers have, and 
you know, some of us who, if anyone's pursuing film as a career and how it all started when you fell in love with movies for the first time. And I think it's starts, it's, it's a really great story about that whole adolescence to adulthood of, of using film as your number one passion in life. Number 98, The Grand Budapest Hotel. This came out in 2016, directed by Wes Anderson. This is Wes Anderson at his best. I love all of his movies. World Tenenbaums is up there from my favorite Wes Anderson films. Um, Rushmore is great. Obviously, fantastic Mr. Fox, Isle of Dogs. But I think Grand, The Grand Budapest Hotel is just Wes at his best. I love French Dispatch a lot, but I don't think, I don't think he'll ever top this movie. It's a complete masterpiece. It's so funny. I think um, Ray Fiennes is absolutely exceptional in the lead role. Um, I think just it's got a great story, really incredible screenplay, amazing characters like always, great mix of practical miniatures and, and real in-camera photography by Wes Anderson. Obviously, his, his movies look incredible. He's got his own fairy tale quality, whimsical nature to his films. And I think Grand Budapest Hotel is his strongest movie, and I'd be surprised if he ever topped it because it's that perfect of a movie. In number 97, I have All the President's Men. This came out in 1976, directed by Alan J. Pakula. This stars both Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as journalists who are the guys who broke the story of Watergate back when Richard Nixon was spying on his opponent's presidential campaign at the Watergate apartment complex or offices and everything like that. And I think this is maybe the best investigative journalist film I've ever seen. I think it's just truly remarkable what they accomplished, capturing this one of the biggest scandals in American history, and just telling an incredible story off of it. And these two reporters and journalists, how just they just work together fearlessly to uncover the truth and get it out there to the people. It's really, really well made film. Um, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford in their prime together, sharing scenes is just for the majority of the movie. I love every second of them on t- on screen together. It's really remarkable to watch. Uh, number 96, I have The Hurt Locker. This came out in 2008, directed by Catherine Bigelow, who was the first woman to ever win an Oscar for directing, best director with this film, and also won Best Picture, first Best Picture winner of a director of a film directed by a woman. I think that, I know that The Hurt Locker isn't the most accurate war film ever made. I know a lot of people who are served in the armed forces say it's pretty fanci- uh, fantasized and, you know, Hollywoodized for sure. But I think just in terms of it being a film, the directing, the characters, the writing, I think Catherine Bigelow is incredibly talented. And this movie kills me every time I watch it. It's just so well made and crafted. Every shot, every scene. Uh, she did some experimental stuff with that ultra slow-mo filmmaking and, and ca- capturing with uh, like the bullets falling to the ground and everything like that. And the cast is absolutely absurd. This is Jeremy Renner before he was a Hawkeye, of course. I mean, Ray Fiennes comes in there. Guy Pierce, Anthony Mackie before he was... Uh, Falcon and Captain America and in the Avengers films. So I think it's a really, really exceptionally well-made movie. That's why I'm putting it on my list. And in terms of war movies, it's one of my favorite, even though I know it's not very accurate probably to what these soldiers' lives are like in terms of the uh, demolition guys and, and women in the armed services. Number 95, I have Dune. I know what you're saying. He's such a Dune hardo. Of course he's going to put Dune on my list. But I'm telling you, Give it time, and, and over the course of years, this is already, I'm pretty sure, on IMDb's like top 150 of movies user list, but I think that Dune is just a special movie. I think so far it's the best movie this decade, even though we're two years into that 2020 and 2021, but Denis Villeneuve, I mean, what he did with Blade Runner 2049, no one ever thought that you could make a, anyone could make a sequel to that movie, but he arguably made maybe a better sequel to that, but then, I mean, Sicario and Prisoners, but then he makes Dune, which I think 
I don't know if anyone could have ever adapted this movie the way Denis did and gave it, you know, the praise and, and, and made an adaptation that was worthy of the source material of the book by Frank Herbert. And this is obviously only part one of the first book, so I can't wait for part two to come out. But I think that just the production elements alone, the filmmaking, the acting, the script, everything about this movie is absolutely exceptional. I think it needs a few more years for people to under to actually appreciate what they've got in this movie Dune because, you know, it's there's so many movies come out every year and you know Marvel takes over everything and Star Wars takes over everything but you know Dune did pretty well in the box office and obviously has a huge star in Timothy Chalamet at the lead but also the rest of the cast absolutely ridiculous um Rebecca Ferguson Oscar Isaac Josh Brolin Zendaya just it's you can go on and on um um Stellan Skarsgård is Baron Harkonnen this movie it's it's very special and I think in the next five to ten years people will really start to appreciate what Denis did and what he's going to do with the second one Number 94, I have Memento, came out in 2000, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, based on a short story written by his brother Jonathan Nolan, and I think Memento is probably, it could be Christopher Nolan's best screenplay, it's really exceptional, I think, I'm pretty sure he was nominated for an Oscar, didn't win obviously, because I don't think he's ever won an Oscar for directing or screenplays, but I think that what he did with Memento laid the foundation of the rest of his filmography in terms of playing with time and kind of like sort of what Tarantino did with with Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction bouncing around different timelines and sequences of a story where Tarantino took it to a different level where he has the stories being told both in two storylines, one going forward and one going backwards. And obviously it's separated by whether it's in color or in black and white for whether it's going forward or backwards. And I think that the the lead character... Leonard, played by Guy Pierce, is really interesting. The story's fascinating. I've never really seen anything like this before about this person who has short-term memory loss, and he's trying to find the killer of his wife, an endless journey that he's just kind of eventually... I don't want, Actually, I don't want to spoil it um, in case somebody's never seen it. But I think Memento might be his best screenplay. It's really, really impressive directorial, directorial debut by Christopher Nolan. Of course, his film following was before this, but that was like on a budget of $10,000. This is actual with funding from a studio and everything. Got uh, a release in, in, in festivals and um, a little bit of a theatrical release. So this is technically his first real directorial debut, and I think it's one of the best we'll ever see. Number 93, I have Lost in Translation. This came out in 2003, directed by Sofia Coppola. And I think that her and her father are the only family members that are both on this list in general, which is an incredible testament to the talent in that family. Uh, Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, is one of the best directors of all time. And Sofia is incredibly talented. Apple did not fall far from the tree at all. Lost in Translation is really, it's a really beautiful film, I think, about capturing two people who are just lost in the world kind of where they're at in their lives you know Scarlett Johansson's character is in this marriage that she doesn't that she thinks she rushed into and she's not really sure that the man that she married is the same person anymore and then Bill Murray's character is this uh, Hollywood star who's just kind of lost in his life and doesn't want to really be doing what he's doing they're both in Tokyo in Japan just wandering the streets and they discover each other and it's it's not exactly like a romance film, but it's a it's about love and it's about emotional connection to somebody, despite them never really acting on those feelings or anything like that. Because you know they they want to stay true to their marriages and maybe try to make it work on both ends. But I think it's a really special film. I love the the filmmaking that sh- that Sophia brought to it in terms of like the everyday scenarios that you never see in film. You know, all the time spent in bed that we spend a third of our lives, and I think there's there's so many incredible scenes of that in, in those. 
you're just kind of wandering through life alone, especially when you're by yourself in situations. And I think that it's really just a timeless film that we can really all connect to. And I think Sophia did an incredible job with it. Number 92, I have Mad Max Fury Road. came out in 2015, directed by George Miller. And the thing with Mad Max, the originals are so fun. Obviously, Mel Gibson in those films as Max is incredible. But, you know, it was a while ago in, what was that, the 70s and 80s, and George couldn't really fulfill the vision of what was going on inside of his head. How could he with the budgets in the filmmaking and the, and the effects they had back then? I mean, there's no way he could have pulled it off. But then you finally see Mad Max Fury Road, and you're like, oh, this is what this guy's been thinking of for the last 30, 40 years. He finally be able to give his true vision to what's going on in his mind, what's going through in his illustrations and what he's trying to tell us a story about, he can finally show us that incredible world, the incredible visuals. This is one of the best action movies made of all time. But the great thing, the thing I love about it is it's not even about Max, really. It's about Furiosa. She's the lead of the story. So it's a very strong feminist film about this woman who's trying to save these other women who are being controlled, obviously, by the villain and antagonist of the film. And I think Mad Max, Mad Max was an incredible accomplishment, what they did practically is mind-blowing. There's very little CGI in this film, despite, despise, I mean, uh, obviously, except for the shots of, like, expanding the desert and stuff like that, but most of the explosions and, and wreckage is all done practically in camera, which is insane and a testament for sure to all the incredible stuntmen and women that are working in the industry around the world. At number 91, I have Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, released in 2014, directed by Alejandro Iñárritu. This is an exceptional movie. It was groundbreaking the use of creating this realistic feeling of a giant or a long extended one take that never ends in film. And obviously, uh, Iñárritu used a lot of long takes. It uses a lot of long takes in all of his films, and we, we've seen it plenty in The Revenant. But then films like 1917 really tried to expand on that idea and concept as well as creating this long, long one take. Um, Birdman, though, what they accomplished was absolutely incredible because, I mean, Michael Keaton gives the performance of his career probably, and the entire film is a character study on him, and you could say is a metaphor for his career where, you know, he was Batman and then kind of just kind of disappeared and faded from the, the limelight in Hollywood and, and the spotlight of everyone. And then he's trying – and then – Obviously, Michael Keaton has a, had a massive resurgence in his career the last five to ten years, especially after this film came out. And I think just practically what they accomplished in this film was so groundbreaking, very experimental, and it's got so much energy in this film and so much heart. And every time I watch it, I just take something away from it, and I'm just completely mesmerized and engrossed by the filmmaking of it. And I think Inuritu is one of the most talented filmmakers working today. You know, there's a reason why Inuritu won Best Director back-to-back years, I believe, with this and The Revenant. I think, yeah, they came out back-to-back years, 2014, 2015, and I think he has five Oscars total. So just one of the most talented directors working today. We're so lucky to have someone like him operating and storytelling in Hollywood. At number 90, I have The Truman Show. This came out in 1998, directed by Peter Ware and starring Jim Carrey. I think this is Jim Carrey's best role. I think it's uh, a travesty this guy didn't get a nominator or win an Oscar for this performance because, you know, this character is... Something that we've never seen, will never see, and that's one of the reasons why I put this movie on the list. It's because it's wholly unique. Obviously, Ed TV came out like this too, a film similar where McConaughey plays a, a character who's on TV 24-7. But that's different because Ed knows he's on TV, whereas Truman has spent his entire life, he's probably like, what, 30, 35 years old in the film, 
And he's never known that he's being watched every second, every single day of his life by all the people around the world, pretty much. The viewership is absurd. So this character is so, so unique and interesting. What that person would look like in the real world or what that would be, I think very few people could have captured that on film as a character and, and acting with that Jim Carrey pulled off. And, you know, I love to think about the ending of this film where people think it's a happy ending. You know, he finds the end of the world and he, he walks through the door. I like to think of what life would really be like for Truman at the end of this film in the real world, how he'd probably be so messed up emotionally that he could never trust anybody ever again. And um, maybe he'd just have so much mental health issues. But I think this is a brilliant film. Again, wholly unique. Never seen anything like it. Probably will never see anything like it again. At number 89, I have The Piano. This came out in 1993, directed by Jane Campion. Has an incredible cast, Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill, Anna Patkin, who won an Oscar, I believe, for Best Supporting Actress, the youngest ever to do it. She was just a kid. Um, this is a really powerful and intense film. It's about a, a mute woman who's basically sold into marriage, and along with her daughter and her prized piano. You know, it's a very intense film about the power that these people have over her and, and the control that they have over her. But as she starts to develop feelings for a, for a man in the film, it's it's really powerful. Jane Campion is an incredible storyteller. I just checked out Power of the Dog. I really love that. I thought that was also very mesmerizing. Really incredibly looking film visually. Um, the piano is exceptional. You got to check it out. Number 88, we have Get Out, directed by Jordan Peele, released in 2017. This was a game changer, I think, in the horror genre. I think we're currently living in the best time ever for horror since probably the, the 60s and 70s. You could argue it's better. I think that directors like Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, they're, they're firing on all cylinders, and they're just creating this incre- these incredible stories and Get Out absolutely blew my mind this one was this was a film that was like very word of mouth like everyone's like you gotta go see get out you gotta go see get out meaning that he saw this in a packed theater and everyone was just blown away by it we're all reacting at the same times the right moments together in the cinema you know i love those experiences you have and you share with the audience and get out was one of those films for us and it's a very intelligent film intense never seen anything like before in my life and you know when you finally get into the third act of the film you were just you just can't believe what you're watching. I think Jordan Peele is an incredibly talented guy, and we're lo- we love his uh, sketch comedy show, Jordan, uh, Key and Peele. Those sketches are hysterical, but to see him behind the camera making these incredible horror films, love it. At number 87, I have The Shawshank Redemption, released in 1994, directed by Frank Darabont. This is based on a short story by Stephen King. And Frank Darabont made an incredible film. This is, I believe, it's still number one on the INDB user list ratings in terms of top films. Has been for a long time now. And I wouldn't put it like in the top 10 of, obviously I have it at 87 for greatest movies of all time because I'm not saying it's not an incredible movie because it really is. But um, I think that what they crafted was incredible. It's, it's, It's very, the connection that people have with this film and the story with Andy Dufresne and Red it's it's hard to describe and explain because this is probably you could say it's because of that rating. It's the most beloved movie of all time for audiences, and just there's something about it that people really connect to. That feel good story, the underdog, the you know being persecuted for something that you didn't do or maybe you did do. We never we never learn about what really happened. That's what's so interesting about the character Andy Dufresne. You never know if he was truly innocent. You just have to take him at his word, and I think that's just such a interesting concept. And it, despite the fact whether it's true or not, whether he killed his wife. You still root for him the entire film. Number 86, we have Moonlight, released in 2016, directed by Barry Jenkins. I think this is one of probably my top 10 film this century. Absolutely blown away every time I watch this film. It's an incredible character study following three different phases of a boy and man's life. 
as he goes from uh, his childhood to adolescence and teenage years and then to adulthood. And it's just a moving story about what this man has to do eventually when he becomes into his final stage of his life in order to protect himself by creating this hardened shell of this, you know, this drug dealer, hardened man who is basically hiding from who he is on the inside. And this, this, this tough exterior could crumble in a second and reveal who he truly is inside. And, you know, the, the pain and the hardships he faced his entire life and what led him to that moment in the third act of the film. Mahershala Ali got an Oscar win for Best Supporting Actor. He's a phenomenal movie, and I think this movie is incredible. It really is. Number 85, we have Vertigo, released in 1958, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. This is, you know, a classic noir from the 50s and 60s. This ex-police, who's this ex-cop detective, I believe, who's suffering from uh, his intense fear of heights. He's hired to prevent the suicide of an old friend. Revolutionary cinematography. Obviously, this is where Hitchcock pretty much came up with and invented that dolly push and dolly zoom shot where, you know, the camera is either pushing in while zooming out at the same time, remaining focused, or doing the exact opposite. And that's obviously the look when he, when the character's looking down the stairwell. Iconic, iconic film. And again, Alfred Hitchcock was one of the most revolutionary filmmakers in the history of cinema. Number 84, Do the Right Thing. This is a Spike Lee joint. And Spike Lee's a very special filmmaker. So glad he got that Oscar recently, which it was much deserved. He finally needed to get one. Um, this is his probably his best movie between like this and Malcolm X. I also love Inside Man. That's got a one of my favorite heist movies of all time. Um, and obviously Black Klansman's really great too. But, you know, do the right thing. I, the thing with Spike Lee, I think he's so similar to Martin Scorsese where these two guys tell stories about where they're from, you know, their culture and the, and what they what it was like for them growing up. And I think Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing, does an excellent job exploring those racial tensions in in that Brooklyn neighborhood. The, the stories about, um, you know, the African-American residents and the Italian-American uh owners of that local pizzeria and you know the tragedy and violence on that hot summer day i think it's really really great job i love the cinematography all the dutch angles that he gets and uh, actors and characters speaking right into the camera it's really really fun excellent movie number 83 i have tokyo story released in 1953 directed by yasuhiro otsu and you know this is it's a sad movie at the same time as you know very relatable film it's about these adult children where the middle child i believe was killed in war and they're reconnecting or they're back they're 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 with their older parents who they don't have time for anymore and you know i think this film's about the importance of family and i love ozu's style you know he's got a lot of low camera angles 180 degree cuts the camera doesn't move very often, and I like how he likes to keep the camera on actors and characters as they're speaking. And I think he, he holds the shots generally until the characters are done speaking. And I really, I think it's just a really unique and interesting film, and it's obviously masterfully made. At number 82, we have Catch Me If You Can. And now, this was released in 2002, directed by the great Steven Spielberg. And I think Catch Me If You Can might be the most underappreciated film of all time. Obviously, it had a very good box office. It's I think it got nominated for some awards, maybe won a couple. But in, in terms of like when you look at people's greatest films of all time lists, I hardly ever see this anywhere near it. I think this is one of the most interesting stories I've ever seen. I've watched this like a dozen times. And no matter what, whenever I put it on or if I see it on, I have to watch the whole thing. It's so engrossing. This incredible story of Frank Abagnale Jr., played by Leonardo DiCaprio, it's sensational, and this this movie's so fun. It's an incredible crime adventure, and Spielberg's directing is obviously 
excellent, and, and Leo is phenomenal, and the cast is incredible, and I love every minute of this movie. I can't get enough of it. I could watch this back-to-back days, no problem. Catch me if you can. It's such an incredible movie, and when you go through Spielberg's filmography, of course it gets lost in the shuffle of everything he's made, but man, this is one of his best. I think it's top five for him. Number 81, I have Cool Hand Luke, released in 1967, directed by Stuart Rosenberg. There's no way I was going to make this list without getting a Paul Newman movie in there. Paul Newman's one of the best of all time, but this is, I think, his best character. He's impossibly cool in this movie, obviously, Cool Hand Luke. I love the tagline of this movie, uh, the man and the motion picture that simply do not conform. You know, it's a classic, like, anti-hero loner story that was so popular at the time in the 60s and 70s, obviously, with characters like like Dirty Harry, and then um, oh, well, Clint Eastwood, every movie the guy's ever made is an anti-hero, basically. And, you know, Paul Newman plays this character who's in prison in a southern prison, I believe. And he's, it's, he's just kind of like the rebel in the prison. He, he doesn't listen to authority. He's anti-establishment. And, you know, a lot of people in the prison begin to, to respect him, even employees are there. And he's just constantly clashing with the warden. You know, I love prison movies. I think this is one of the most underrated of them. I think it's like a top three prison movie of all time. And I, I just love Paul Newman. Number 80, we have Parasite. This came out in 2019, directed by Bong Joon-ho. And this was another word-of-mouth film like Get Out where, you know, it, I had seen a trailer for it, I think. I, I heard about it, saw posters when it was being released. And then I remember Anthony checked it out by himself. And then he got back from the movie theaters. And he's like, dude. You have to go see this movie, Parasite. It absolutely blew my, blew my mind. Go see it, like, right now. I'm like, all right, I'll go check it out. So I went to the movies and saw Parasite. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe what I watched as soon as the credits rolled. Absolutely blown away. Uh, Bong Joon-ho is an incredible director. He got all the deserved recognition he got with this film. What do you get, like, five Oscars? He got, like, three Oscars with this movie or more. It won a ridiculous amount of rewards. Incredible screenplay. Incredible filmmaking. So much metaphor, so much symbolism, even just in the cinematography, let alone the the the, the scenes and the characters and the in the dialogue and everything going on. And I think it's just so clever and so smart. And you know, every time you watch this, you see new things, and it's so it's such a fun film to study and explore. And I think this is one of those movies that people will be interpreting and studying for for decades to come, like a movie like The Shining. And I think Parasite is up there. It's so good, so good. Number seventy nine, we have Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Released in 2017, directed by Denis Villeneuve. No one thought that anyone could ever make a sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner, let alone a, se- a sequel that was just as good, or you could argue is better. Blade Runner 2049, I can't wait to finally do an episode on it. We'll, we'll do that in Blade Runner. It just compounds even more on the concepts in Blade Runner. You know, the, the concepts of what does it mean to be human, um, existence, uh, the soul, what creates a soul, and how do you get one, or... You know, this character study on Kay, who's a replicant who thinks he's human. He thinks he's special. And his journey in discovering that he's not, you know, he's just a replicant and he's not human. But but th- do you have to, what makes a human human? I mean, why can't Kay have a soul? And I think that this film really does a great job exploring the meaning of life and the meaning of, I guess you could say, existence and God even and stuff like that. So I think that Literary 2049, it's very clever, very smart incredible imagery. Roger Deakins, one of his best film, film movies. This, he definitely got an Oscar for him, pretty damn sure. Um, I'm sure you've all seen it. Number number 78, we have Glory. This came out in 1989, directed by Edward Zwick. It's about the United States' first all-African-American regiment, which was the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. 
This film is incredible, powerful, got an incredible cast. Morgan Freeman, then Denzel Washington. This is the first film that he won an Oscar for. He won Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and he's very powerful, gives a powerful performance in this role as a man who is fighting for a country that you could say he hates. He rightfully hates, and he doesn't want to fight for them. He doesn't want to fight for white people. He doesn't want to fight this war. But, you know, through his commanding officer's guidance, he's convinced that, you know, this is the way to get true freedom and to do something great with your life. And, you know, you've been dealt a crappy hand, and your ancestors were dealt a horrible hand, and it's unfair what happened. But, you know, this movie really shows the power of what could happen when people come together in a culture and just work for a better world and it's a very moving movie one of my favorite war movies of all time and i think the civil war was a fascinating era especially filmmaking making stories about it number 77 i have before sunrise this came out in 1995 directed by richard linklater this stars ethan hawk and julie delpy and it's one of my favorite romance films because it feels so real you know a lot of this dialogue was written by the the actors as well as the screenwriter and I think that what Ethan Hawke and Julie Dep- Delpy did was create real love on film. And, you know, you really see the the chemistry between them and it feels so authentic and realistic. And it feels like you've been in the situation or wanted to be in the situation where you see somebody, you know, you have that glance and you, you feel a connection maybe and you just want to go up and say something to them. And maybe this is what happens if you do. And these two characters that are, they meet on their last day of travels where they're supposed to both leave, uh, Ethan Hawke's going back home, and then Julie's going back, Julie's character is going back to Paris. But they stay for the night, and you know they spend this incredible night wandering the city and exploring and, and talking and getting to know each other, and it's really, really beautiful. The trilogy itself is sensational because it even explores even more what happens in life, and you know Richard Linklater is such a creative and interesting filmmaker, especially with a film like Boyhood. This is His trilogy is similar to, to Boyhood in terms of expanding time and following characters throughout different stages of life. Number 76, I have The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. came out in 1920, directed by Robert Wine. This is the definitive German Expressionism film, I would say. And, you know, this is a very important era for, for film. And we still see German Expressionism in movies today. I think that Tim Burton's the greatest example of modern filmmaking using German Expressionism roots. And, you know, German Expressionism is... The, the cinematography, the creative styles, obviously the Cabinet of Caligari, they kind of pioneered Dutch angles and those abstract sets and, and characters. And this film is sensational. And I love silent film. And I think it's important for people to watch silent films to get it. Because the movies have been being made for over 100 years, you know. Silent film was the, was the start of it, you know. Movies didn't have audio, obviously. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari explores, you know, authority, Insanity versus insanity, and I th- insanity versus sanity, and I think I would say probably the best big twist end- ending you'd ever seen, or the first example of like a crazy big twist ending. And obviously, I won't reveal it, but I definitely recommend getting some film history and watching silent films, especially The Academy of Dr. Caligari and films like Nosferatu. And I have some more on this list. Number seventy-five, I have Train Spotting, directed by Danny Boyle, released in nineteen ninety-six. I think this is. Possibly the best film depicting addiction, following these these addicted uh, young adults in Scotland. And it was between like this or Requiem for a Dream for me. I wanted to get one of them on this list. And I think that Train Spotting is a stronger movie than Requiem for a Dream. Not that Requiem isn't an incredibly moving and tragic film for anyone who knows 
mean, anyone who's dealt with addiction or knows anyone that's dealt with addiction, you know, watching these characters, and I think train spotting especially, and watching how it just ruins your life and destroys you and it takes over everything. And it's impossible. It's almost impossible to stop. But I think Danny Boyle is a very exciting filmmaker. He has this energy that he brings to his films, like, like Slumdog Millionaires. Awesome. 127 hours. Awesome. 28 days later, guy makes a, he's made a ton of great movies. I think train spotting is probably his best work. Number 74. I have heat released in 1995 directed by Michael Mann. This is possibly it's one of my favorite crime movies. It's got probably the best shootout you'll ever see in a movie. Um, the cast is absurd. We got Pacino and De Niro together in a movie. Obviously, they're both in Godfather Part Two, but they don't have scenes together. Obviously, because he plays young Vito in the origins of Vito Corleone, and then Al Pacino plays Michael as he's taken over as the family of the Corleone house. And but with with Heat, we get these two iconic actors, two of the best to ever do it, ever, of all time. I don't care what anyone says when they say that, oh, they only play the same characters over and over again. It's because you haven't seen their movies. You haven't gone back and watched their filmographies. You know, you haven't seen Taxi Driver. You haven't seen uh, Dog Day Afternoon. You know, you haven't seen Raging Bull. That's why you think that they only play the same characters. But these are the two of the best actors to ever do it on camera together. And this movie's incredible. Michael Mann's a great, great director. Number 73, I have Rocky, released in 1976, directed by John G. Avildsen. This won Best Picture that year, and this was written by Sylvester Stallone. We all know the story about how he had to sell his dog in order to pay his bills so that he could keep going with his screenwriting dream and, and filmmaking dream to eventually sell his script and make the movie and star in it. And the rest is history with Sylvester Stallone. But this movie, it's, I think, the ultimate underdog story, the ultimate feel-good movie, this is kind of like a, a movie you gotta I watch every year for sure. It's one of my all time favorites. You know, Rocky Balboa is an iconic character. You can't help but root for him in every single situation he's in. You know, he comes from nothing and he achieves everything. And Rocky is an incredible story. And you know, obviously the boxing in it isn't realistic. You know, this this dude couldn't take all these haymakers from Apollo Creed and keep standing. But man, it's it's so well made. I love this movie so much. It's like a fairy tale. Number 72, I have The Master, released in 2012, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Like Catch Me If You Can, I think this is one of the most underappreciated films of all time. Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, is one of the best filmmakers working right now. I think the guy is in his prime. He's making incredible movies. We just saw Licorice Pizza. And The Master, you know, I feel like it kind of flew under the radar. You know, is it has two of the best performances you'll ever see on camera. We have Philip Seymour Hoffman and then Joaquin Phoenix. And of course, Amy Adams is in this as well. Early role for Rami Malek, early role for Jesse Plemons. Incredible, incredible cast, incredible story. I think what Paul Thomas Anderson crafts with his movies are, are incredibly unique and original. And this is just, he knocked it out of the park with this movie. Cinematography, everything, everything's incredible. Number 71, I have Apocalypse Now, released in 1979, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And you could argue that this is possibly the best war movie of all time. I would, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't counter that if you gave the good evidence for it. I think there's maybe one more above it, but you know, this is one of the best ever. It deals with the psyche of war and what happens to soldiers when they've been in war for too long. Cast is awesome. It's very surrealist and trippy at times. Um, we have the a crazy performance from Marlon Brando in this movie, and you know. It's one of those movies that, you know, you got to watch. You got to get it on a list and you got to check it out because if you haven't seen Apocalypse Now, you're missing out on some incredible filmmaking. 
Number 70, we have Stalker, released in 1979, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. Could argue that this is one of the best sci-fi post-apocalyptic films ever made. Incredible imagery. It's very mysterious. Uh, it's a mesmerizing sci-fi film. You know, these these men attempt to explore this, this post-apocalyptic zone to try to have their most intense desires met. And it's really, really interesting movie. Obviously, when you think of sci-fi films from like the 70s and 80s, you think of Alien in 1979, Blade Runner in 1982, um, other films like that. But I think that in Star Wars... But I think Stalker flies under the radar for the average film lover who hasn't seen it. This is one of those you got to check out from that era. And Tarkovsky is, you know, one of the most interesting filmmakers we've ever had. Number 69, I have Inception, released in 2010, directed by Christopher Nolan. You know I had to get a couple of Christopher Nolan movies on this list. And I think Inception was so groundbreaking and so ambitious. You know, I don't think we'd seen anything like it since The Matrix uh, 11 years earlier. In terms of not just like the, the the filmmaking quality and the practical effects, but also the idea um, being so the abstract ideas of you know dreams within dreams. Never seen anything like it really before in Hollywood on a large scale. And what in Nolan's use of practical effects really is what makes this movie work. I think you know we've seen it's some of the most iconic scenes you'll ever see, like the spinning hallway and all the kicks and you know going inside dreams. It's just. I've never seen anything like it before, and Christopher Nolan, such an incredible filmmaker, one of my favorite all time. And this movie, I've seen it like twenty times. I love it. Hans Zimmer, one of his, one of my favorite scores by him. You could say that Hans Zimmer's song "Time" it might be one of the most popular movie songs of ever made. You know that thing probably has a billion plays on Spotify or something like that. But Inception, we've done an episode on it. Could talk about it for days. Number sixty-eight, I have the talented Mr. Ripley, released in nineteen ninety-nine, directed by Anthony Mangella. I love this movie. There's something about it. You know. I love Patricia Highsmith's novels and her character, Tom Ripley, I think is one of the most fascinating characters written in the 20th century. If you haven't read any of her books, I highly recommend it. She's also done um, Strangers on a Train, some other great ones. But um, Mr. T- uh, Tom Ripley is so fascinating. I think Matt Damon really is the best performance we've ever gotten as Tom Ripley. A lot of actors have played Tom Ripley. Obviously, um, John Malkovich has done it, some others. But I think Matt really captured what Tom Ripley's really like, especially at this young age, you know, trying to take advantage of people and, you know, escaping his life. And this con man turned killer, it's it's so engrossing, you know, and the story is shot in Italy. The cast is incredible. We have this a, a bunch of stars before they were super famous. You know, we have Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Matt Damon, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Kate Blanchett, insane cast, beautifully shot. Um, I just, I just love, 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 love the talented Mr. Ripley. All right. Number 67. I'm not really supposed to talk about this movie. It's the first rule about it. So I can't really talk about it. This movie that came out in 1999 directed by David Fincher, but I think it's just, we've done a solo episode on it and this movie, which I'm not supposed to talk about. It's incredible. And you know, it captured, I think an entire generation and what was going on in our minds and, you know, concept of being controlled by consumerism and capitalism and and not fulfillment and not finding fulfillment in life and being stuck and i think this film when you get off the surface which i think a lot of people think negatively about it because they just look at the surface of this movie and they don't look underneath it this movie is really about finding fulfillment in your life not in a negative way but finding a life worth meaning living a life worth living basically and y'all know what i'm talking about right all right, yeah, I don't have to say. Number 66, Rear Window, 
directed by Alfred Hitchcock, released in 1954. Rear Window is such an incredible accomplishment in filmmaking. It takes place in one goddamn room. This guy made a movie about a character in a room with an in, with a broken leg, or every, yeah, broken leg, in a wheelchair. And that's the whole movie, is him in a room, looking out his window, spying on people, thinking he saw a murder, and trying to solve this murder. And I gotta say, Grace Kelly, one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life, because she... As soon as you see her opening her introduction shot in the film, you're like, "Oh my God, Grace Kelly! What happened to her?" Grace Kelly probably would have been the one of the greatest actresses and actors to ever live. You could say she was, but her career ended so shortly because she um, married a, a prince and became a princess. Um, I can't remember what country, and he made her stop her acting career, which is so unfortunate because she was she was already a legend. You know, this movie, Dial M for Murder, so she was on her way to being probably the greatest actress to ever live. Um, but I think Rear Window is such an incredible accomplishment in what Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock did by crafting an entire story looking out a window. It's I don't think anyone could have done it. Anyone could do it today. Number 65, Jurassic Park, released in 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. This movie is it's incredible. You know, Spielberg created the summer blockbuster with Jaws. He invented it basically. Obviously, he didn't say, oh, I'm going to invent this blockbuster, but, you know, it happened. Um, Jurassic Park was a groundbreaking movie, and it's not to mention the incredible practical effects with the animatronic dinosaurs used, in, which still look great today. But, you know, they started using CGI mixed with live film and, and, and real characters and, and real scenarios. So it was a groundbreaking film in that, in that regard, mixing, you know, human people with, char- with CGI dinosaurs. Never really been done on this level before. And I think Steven Spielberg is just... I, th- I think he could be the greatest director of all time. It's hard. It's hard to argue against it because of the the movies this guy's made. And I know it's just all about he's made a lot of blockbuster hits, but I mean, there's a reason why Jurassic Park was such a huge success and still is, and they're still making movies about it because it's just one of the most incredible films ever made. You know, the fascination of dinosaurs and prehistoric history, and if they were still here today, what would it be like? Boom! Amaz- amazing book by Michael Crichton too. Definitely read that. It's it's pretty different, but it's it's also excellent. Number 64, I have Brokeback Mountain, released in 2005, directed by Ang Lee. This is a very powerful film, incredibly tragic. Uh, we did a solo episode on this as well. And, you know, what Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger did in their performances were absolutely groundbreaking. And, you know, I don't think you could argue that Heath Ledger may have not gotten cast as the Joker if he wasn't in this movie and gave this incredible performance. I think it's, I think you could argue that his performance in Brokeback Mountain is better than Joker in The Dark Knight. I mean... The subtle nature and the nuances of his performance in this movie, you could watch it a thousand times and still pick up new things that he was doing in it, you know. It's so emotional. It's, man, it breaks my heart every time I watch it. I, I get emotional just thinking about this movie and, you know, Ang Lee coming off Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, doing a movie like this in just a completely different tone and story. It just shows you how talented of a director he is and this movie is exceptional. Number 63, maybe I should start speeding this up because we're only on number 63. All right, let's go a little faster. Number 63, Escape from Alcatraz, released in 1979, directed by Don Siegel. I love prison movies, like I said earlier, and I think Escape from Alcatraz is a brilliant masterpiece. No one talks about this movie anymore It's because it's been so long, you know. But this movie is so incredible. Clint Eastwood is the man like usual in this movie, but it's I think it's the best prison escape movie ever made. It's got to be. I mean, I love Shawshank, but I think there's no Shawshank, obviously, without Escape from Alcatraz, and this is like the original great prison escape movie, I think. And... Gotta check it out if you haven't seen it yet. It's such a such a good movie. Number 62, Casablanca, 
1954 release, directed by Michael Kurtz. This is a classic movie that I'm sure is on everyone's top 100 list. Um, Humphrey Bogart, Ingmar Bergman, and, you know, about this guy who is deciding whether to help his ex-lover escape Nazis in Morocco, which is where the bar he owns. And, you know, it's an incredible movie, classic, and, you know, it's got to be on your list. Number 61, I have Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, released in 2003, directed by Peter Jackson. This one cleaned up at the Oscars and won a ton of awards. But I, I'm putting this as my second favorite Lord of the Rings film. Obviously, I'm hinting at what I'm putting up next. But, you know, Return of the King is exceptional. It's really well made. It's got to be, I think it's got to be on a top 100 list for sure, despite it, the fact that, you know, people don't, maybe don't want to put a fantasy film or this fantasy medieval tale on their top 100 list. But Peter Jackson, what he crafted with this trilogy alone is absolutely exceptional. It might be the best trilogy ever made. It might be might be the best franchise ever made in terms of filmmaking because every movie in the trilogy is, in fact, a masterpiece. There is no denying that. And Return of the King really just f- finished off this incredible story, this in- incredible journey. And, you know, I don't think anyone will ever make movies like this ever again, what he did. Number 60, The Pianist, released in 2002, uh, directed by Roman Polanski. Very intense, powerful movie about a horrific time in modern human history during World War II. And, you know, it's it's tough to watch movies like this when you watch the invasion of a country and what happens to the people when they become controlled and then killed and exterminated. And it's 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 hard to watch. And Adrian Brody's incredible. I believe he was the youngest ever to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role in this film. I think he was like in his early 20s in this in his incredibly powerful performance. But man, it's it's a it's a heavy film. Number 59, City of God, released in 2002, directed by Fernando Mieres and Katia Lund. Uh, it takes place in the 1960s in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, about these two boys who grow up together but take very different paths in life, and it deserves to be on this list for sure. It's one of the best international films made in the last two decades, three decades for sure, and it's moving, has incredible imagery, some great cinematography, and I think they did a great job working together to craft a masterpiece in this. Number 58, The Social Network, released in 2010, directed by David Fincher. Probably, you could argue, the best script made this decade, written by Aaron Sorkin. And then, I mean, I love David Fincher. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And, you know, I think that this movie kind of flies under the radar for a lot of people. Obviously, people think of um, Seven when they think of David Fincher, even think of Gone Girl, then think of uh, that movie that we're not supposed to talk about. But The Social Network, you could argue, is his best movie. It's expertly directed. Incredible cast. Jesse Eisenberg is so phenomenal. as Mark Zuckerberg in this movie. And, man, this movie, I could watch it on repeat because it's that good. And I still pick up on new things about it all the time. And, you know, it's still relevant to our world today. And you could argue with what's going forward. Number 57, I have Amelie, released in 2001, directed by Jean-Pierre Junet, starring Audrey Tattoo as the lead character, Amelie. And I love, love, love this movie. This is one of those feel-good movies I'll put on. It's it's about this incredible character played by um, Audrey Amelie, and this movie just makes me feel so good inside. I love the colors. It's so funny, whimsical, endearing, and it really just like captures my heart, and, and it's I love love stories, and this is one of my favorite romance films of all time. Number 56, Reservoir Dogs, released in 1992, directed by Quentin Tarantino. This movie was, in fact, a game changer. 
you could argue the best directorial debut of all time from Quentin Tarantino, like this and Citizen Kane uh, from, what's his name, Orson Welles. Um, Reservoir Dogs was was such a game changer in, in the crime film genre. And in terms of, it's a heist movie. You don't see the heist. How incredible is that? That concept is out of this world. And I'm sure it was out of this world to studios. And they're like, you're not going to show the heist at all? It's just about the characters. And this is when it's he's playing with time. The first time we see Tarantino going back and forth, back and forth, and, you know, following this undercover cop as he's infiltrating these, these criminals, this criminal underworld, and getting on this heist job. And it, it's so, so good. We've all seen this a million times, I'm sure. And it's just so cool. It's a beyond cool movie. Number 55, Gladiator, released in 2000, directed by Ridley Scott. Gladiator, turn-of-the-century movie. It's got to be on your list. This movie's incredible. I don't think there's been an ancient culture film to even come close to Gladiator. This is the best ever in that category, I would say. And it's even more incredible when you talk when you think about how they didn't really have a script. They were just kind of going with it. They had like 10 to 20 pages of like written dialogue. But other than that, they were just like, um, all right, what are we filming today? Let's figure it out. Let's write something real quick. And let's depend on incredible performances from Joaquin Phoenix and Russell Crowe to get us through this film. And... What they pulled off is just beyond me. I don't know how they did this. The practical effects were incredible. Russell Crowe's performance is incredible. I've I could watch this movie every day for a month, and I, I wouldn't get bored of it. I watch it. I put it on all the time. Just, I love it. Some of the great dialogue, greatest dialogue I've ever seen in a movie. I love it. I love the character of Maximus. One of my favorite heroes. I get him on the desk right here. Um, all right, let's move on to nine, number fifty-four. The Thing, released in 1982, directed by John Carpenter. The Thing is one of the best horror movies of all time. It has to be on your list, I think. And what John Carpenter pulled off of this film was groundbreaking at the time. You know, this alien coming to Earth and in this secluded area um, in this Arctic, wor- Arctic world. And The Thing is so fascinating. It's so terrifying. The practical effects are disturbing as hell. It's like just as good as The Exorcist in terms of what they pulled off, I think. It's terrifying. I know they tried to remake it, and that remake was just like, come on, what are you doing? Why why are we going to remake The Exorcist too? Um, I think just what he pulled off was incredible, and everyone doubted him, but he was right, and he made one of the greatest horror films of all time. Number 53, Eraserhead, released in 1977, directed by David Lynch. This movie is a trip. It is so out there, far out there. Kafka-esque um, about this character who <laughs> he has this this mutant child. And David Lynch's concepts are so out there. I think most people would put Mulholland Drive if they're going to pick a uh, uh, David Lynch film to put on a list like this. Or even Blue Velvet. But I think Eraserhead is his best movie. You know, you got to check this out if you've never seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a trippy, trippy movie. Um Number 52, Pan's Labyrinth, released in 2006, directed by Guillermo del Toro. This, I think, is Guillermo's masterpiece, and he's one of my favorite directors. And this is this dark fairy tale, an adult fairy tale. This is not a children's movie. Don't don't put this on with your kids thinking, they're, oh, it's, it's about this young girl. It's pretty dark, pretty messed up, some violent moments. But it's a beautiful film, and it makes me cry multiple times every time I watch it. I, I, I just put on the music for this movie, the opening track, the... the the, the songs, and I get emotional just thinking about it because of the tragedy of the ending. And I just love, love, love Pan's Labyrinth. And, you know, what goes on in Guillermo del Toro's mind, I think we're so lucky to have him as a storyteller. Number 51, I have Nosferatu, released in 1929, directed by F.W. Murnau. And you could say that this is the first interpretation probably of Dracula 
in mainstream film. It's not exactly Dracula, it's a vampire, but I think that, you know, there are copyright issues and, and, and budget issues, so they couldn't exactly make a film adaptation about the story Dracula. But it's, you know, obviously closely related to Dracula and a vampire. Incredible film, German Expressionism. I think you got to study that if you're a film history buff or, or you want to learn more about film in the past. The 1920s German Expressionism, you know, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu are two best examples of what was going on back then. Besides, there's one more example, but, you know, you, you got to watch this. It's it's terrifying. It still holds up today, but, you know, I think it's so important to study and watch silent film. It really is, especially if you love movies today. Number 50, Children of Men, released in 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. One of my favorite movies, I think it's in my top 20 personally, and I just love, love, love this movie. Alfonso, I think, is one of the greatest filmmakers working today. Roma, if you haven't seen it yet, which is his latest film. It was a Netflix film, so I don't think a ton of people saw it. it didn't have a theatrical release. Um, that was also a masterpiece. You know, you could you could put that on the list for sure. Alfonso, I think, is a genius, and what they did with Children of Men is exceptional. You know, the long take film, uh, the long take cinematography and and filmmaking style. Uh, tons of handheld in this movie. This. This had a profound effect on me when I saw it as a teenager. And, you know, this is one of those movies that really piqued my interest in film, you know, as a potential career and intense passion. You know, those long takes, especially especially the one in the car, what they pulled off is absolutely incredible. Emmanuel Lubezki is a genius cinematographer as well. La N at number 49, released in 1995, directed by Matthew Kusevitz. And this film is relevant today still. You know, it stars Vincent Castle, some of the great practical shots I've ever greatest practical shots I've ever seen I love the mirror shot um and I love the black and white filmmaking style you know it's relevant today it's about you know this these these young youths who are sick of authority in in the establishment and you know it's about a, a shooting of a citizen and it's about police brutality and what happens and it's a story about these these young these young adults who find a, that gun from the shooting and what goes on afterwards when they get that for the rest of the day and the night it's incredible. It's powerful. You gotta check it out. Number 48, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, released in 1977, directed by George Lucas. This isn't my favorite in the original trilogy, but I put it here on this list because it's. I think it's more important than the others because it laid the foundation, obviously, of Star Wars and what was to come and what we're still, we still have going on today. Excuse me. And you know, Star Wars: A New Hope was absolutely groundbreaking. This science fiction space fantasy like what the hell can you imagine going to see this movie in theaters in 1977 what an experience that would have been i mean just to to watch the ships and lightsabers and laser guns and and everything it's absolutely incredible what george lucas thought up and what goes on his head and how he was able to make it into an incredible film and you know this has launched one of the biggest franchises in entertainment history number 47 eight and a half released in 1963 directed by federico fellini this is a great, great surrealist film about a film director, um, Guido, what's his last name? Guido Anselmi. And you could say that this is probably the best film ever made about filmmaking. Um, incredible cinematography. Some of my, my favorite shots of all time, like the like the kite shot of looking down with the, the rope tied to his ankle, stuff like that. Um, incredible film. Gotta watch it. Number 46, It's a Wonderful Life, released in 1946, directed by Fink Capra. It's an iconic Christmas movie. One of James Stewart's best roles shows the positive effect that one person can have on the many lives around them. And I think that's a really powerful message to show in a film. Number 45, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, directed by Ang Lee, released in 2000. It's incredible when you think of he made Brokeback Mountain after this because there's so 
incredible, such incredibly different films. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was was an it's an incredible achievement in filmmaking in terms of practical effects. We all that wire work and the martial arts. We never really seen anything on that scale before in Hollywood. And I think Ang Lee is just such a talented director. And I love the visuals and the cinematography in this movie are some of the best you'll ever see ever. It's it's incredible what they captured in camera. Love every shot of this film. It's really powerful. Production des- production design, wardrobe, out of this part, good. Number 44. Sorry, I'm going to start speeding up because we're over an hour in almost. Number 44, Saving Private Ryan, released in 1998, directed by Steven Spielberg. Probably the greatest war film ever made, if not the most accurate war film ever made. You know, I mean, the opening 26-minute sequence of storming the beaches of Normandy is just the most intense piece of filmmaking I have ever, I think, has ever been put on camera in you know, what Spielberg accomplished with this movie was showing, not glorifying war, but showing the consequences of war and why war can be a necessity, especially in this situation where, you know, you have to stop this great evil in the world. And there's only one thing to do to do that is you have to fight and you have to stand up for, for justice and things that are good in the world. And it's, we've all seen it a bunch of times. It's, it's, in, it's absolutely incredible. And what he pulled off is sensational. Number 43, Rosemary's Baby, released in 1968, directed by Roman Polanski. For many of you who have never seen this movie but may have seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is the movie that gets referenced multiple times, especially when um, Leo's character lives next door to Roman Polanski, who was married to Sharon Tate at the time. Um, Rosemary's Baby is genius filmmaking. I think that Polanski is one of the, the greatest directors of all time when it comes to building suspense. It's like him and Hitchcock, I think, are, are one and two. And this movie... Is, has been tried to be, you could say, duplicated and copied many times. You know, the idea of possession and demons and occultism is so fascinating. I think he just pulled off an incredible story with Rosemary's Baby. And, um, and Mia Farrow is so good as the lead in this movie. I love, I love her performance in this. Number 42, Seven, released in 1995, directed by David Fincher. That's, that's like the third movie that was released in 1995 that's on this list. I didn't even notice that. This and Laen and a couple others. Um, seven, David Fincher's serial killer drama crime film. I think it's one of the best made in the last 30 years. I, you could say it's the best serial killer movie for sure. Um, unless you count Psycho as a serial killer movie, which, yeah, that, that's a serial killer movie for sure. I think it's between those two. And I think this is David Fincher's probably his best movie. And it's masterful directing, incredible storytelling. Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are sensational in this movie together their, their chemistry is off the charts and it's disturbing as hell like serial killers are and there's there's some fascination that we have with serial killers that we can't help but watching stories about them i mean i'm obsessed with true crime pro, true crime podcast there's a reason why true crime podcasts are the, the most listened to on the planet you could say and i think that what they pulled off with seven was groundbreaking and i can't wait to see his next serial killer movie that he's making with michael fassbender coming out soon number 41 la dolce vita released in 1960 directed by federico fellini the beautiful film takes place in roma um it's about the glorification and indulgence of this of a carefree life you could say but it's also you know at at the heart it's a a deep character study at moments as well and won the palm d'or in 1960 but was condemned by the vatican and was subject to widespread censorship because you could say it was just so far ahead of its time. Um, and it's just an incredible film. Number 40, 12 Years a Slave, released in 2013, directed by Steve McQueen. I think he's an incredible filmmaker. Uh, if you've ever seen Hunger or Shame, 
if you haven't checked them out, watch them ASAP. And then also, uh, Widows is really, really great as well. Uh, what Steve McQueen made was probably the most powerful film you could say ever made in 12 Years a Slave. And when it comes to films about slavery, this is the best one ever made, the most powerful, the most emotional. Um, following Solomon Northup, played by Chutel Jafar, his tragic story and journey, which you could say pales in comparison to some of the other characters in the story, like uh, like Lupita Longo's character, um, Patsy, what, what her life has been. And, you know, it's about this tragic, tragic world that existed for a very long time. And, you know, it's important to watch and see and make movies like this to reflect on the past and to understand how important it is to, to learn from that. And, you know, we can't ever let things like this ever happen again in this in this world we're living in because it's such a horrible evil. And, I mean, even Fastbender in this movie is absolutely incredible. But this, this movie's it's a powerhouse, and it makes me break down multiple times. And after I watch it, I am emotionally drained. It, it's It's so intense. Number 39, Old Boy, released in 1995. Another 95. I didn't even do this on purpose. Directed by Chan Wook Park. This movie is crazy. It is out of this world. It's got one of the most insane twist endings you'll ever see in your life. I think it's the best twist ever. Um, it was remade in Hollywood recently by Spike Lee. I just didn't, I don't think they captured anything close to what the original was. Um, Chan Wook Park is a genius filmmaker. I think this is his best work, and it's it's so fun. It's a wild movie. Number 38, The Graduate, released in 1967, directed by Mike Nichols, starring Dustin Hoffman. This is really what, you know, got Dustin Hoffman propelled into fame and his incredible career. I think he was like 28 when he started in this, and he's playing this uh, guy who just graduated college. And, you know, we've all been in that situation where whether or not we've graduated college or high school, um, you're kind of lost. You're like, what do I do with my life? I mean, I did what everyone told me to do. I went to school. Graduated, got my degree. Now what? Um, and it's it's a very funny movie. You know, he falls in love with this older woman, and then he eventually falls in love with the older woman's daughter. It's a it's a wild movie. The ending is excellent. It's iconic. Um, I think it's one of the most famous examples of like uh, crashing a wedding and getting the girl. But the ending is always, I think, misinterpreted by many people. It is not a happy ending. Number thirty seven, Black Swan, released in two thousand and ten, directed by Darren Aronofsky. I think that Natalie, Natalie Portman's performance in this is top five, top ten this century. She is so incredible in this movie. Um, Aronofsky's a genius filmmaker. I think this is his best work. It's very symbolic, incredible cinematography, and it's it's dark. It's it's interesting. It's mesmerizing, and I think Natalie is just sensational in this role. And she's she's so hypnotic, and she's one of the most talented out there for sure. And Black Swan's incredible. Number 36, A Clockwork Orange. I think this is the first time I've got Stanley Kubrick in here. Don't worry, it won't be the last. Released in 1971. Clockwork Orange is disturbing, groundbreaking filmmaking. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, so sad that we lost him uh, back in 1999 before Eyes Wide Shut even came out because he was probably, you could say, the best director of all time in terms of, you know, filmmaking, execution, Um talent and you know a clockwork orange it's not an easy watch you could i mean many could argue that it hasn't aged super well many movies from the past haven't aged super well but i think clockwork orange is just masterful filmmaking number 35 goodwill hunting released in 1997 directed by gus van sant love this movie 
Google Hunting. It's set in Boston, Kid. You know, uh, I think it's one of my it's one of my favorite scripts of all time. I think it's one of the best scripts ever written written by uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck together. And you know what they captured here? It's just like this fascinating, like fairy tale almost. Especially when you when you listen to Danny Elfman's music about this this kid from Southie, which was at the time you know named one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. Comes from nothing, raised an orphan, but probably the smartest person on the planet. Once in a generation intellect. And it's about him and his journey of dealing with his past trauma and trying to move forward with his life. You know, he has two father figures, Lambeau, the great mathematician who's trying to guide him to a job and and to help fulfill what he thinks will be bettering the world with his with his mind, versus Sean, played by the great Robin Williams, who won an Oscar for this role, who's trying to mentor him to do to, for Will to do what's best for Will and to just find himself and try to accept himself for who he is in his past or that he can live a normal life or somewhat of a normal life. And, you know, it, it, at the end, it ends up being a love story. I love this movie. All right, next up, number 34, The Dark Knight. Come on. You know I'd put it on the list. Christopher Nolan, released in 2008. The best superhero f- film ever made. It will never be topped, in my opinion. Um I think what Christopher Nolan did with the Dark Knight trilogy, the Batman trilogy, was absolutely incredible. You know, he grounded superheroes. You could say that Spider-Man in with Danny Elfman, you know, he grounded it a bit. But I think what what Nolan did was just like, what would the world be like and what would Bruce Wayne be like if he actually existed? If he really existed in the world that we're living in now? You know, the Dark Knight has one of the best movie villains of all time with Heath Ledger as the Joker. That performance will probably never be topped despite it being played by several actors in the past and future. You know, this this terrorist in a city, you know, that's pretty accurate to, you know, you could see that happening in the real world. It makes it feel so real. And, you know, The Dark Knight, it's genius filmmaking. It's incredible. And I think the entire trilogy is genius. I love Batman Begins. I, you could, I could talk about that movie all day as well. And The Dark Knight Rises, I think, is underrated as hell. And we've done an episode on the trilogy. We got to do solo episodes in each one of those for sure. Number 33, I have In the Mood for Love, released in 2000, directed by Kar Wai Wong. Very tender and emotional film. It's about these two people who suspect their spouses are having affairs, and then they eventually build a connection. You know, this reminds me so much of Lost in Translation. It has a very similar vibe um, where, you know, they're trying not to give in to those desires because, you know, they want to live, they want to try to stay true to their to their marriages and their their relationships, but you know, in the mood for love is is very emotional, beautiful, beautiful cinematography, really great characters. I love this movie; it's really, really great. Number thirty two, The Seventh Seal, released in nineteen fifty seven, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Uh, it's about the Swedish knight who returns home from the Crusades to find his country being plagued by the Black Death, and he challenges death to a chess match. In this film, is very metaphorical. It's about life and death. In existence, love those concepts, incredible imagery, really great production design. Um, Got to check it out. Number 31, Unforgiven. This is my favorite Western, released in 1992, directed by Clint Eastwood, also stars Clint Eastwood, and Morgan Freeman, and Gene Hackman, awesome cast. And I love it so much because it's not like a typical Western where it's not like, oh, let's have a bunch of shootouts, we'll have some duels. It's It's pretty... It's about like a, a an, an old outlaw who's kind of washed up and he's trying to live a normal life in his family and on, on his farm. And he's a pig farmer and his ranch. And he's kind of dragged back into a conflict. And so 
he has to give in to his old ways, even though he swore he'd never kill again. And it's a really powerful movie. Great, great filmmaking from Clint. The Man. Number 30, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Released in 2001, Peter Jackson. I love, everyone always says Return of the King is the best one, which you, I, I mean, sure, if that's your opinion, but The Fellowship of the Ring is genius. This is a masterful film. And, you know, it's the start of that journey. And it's incredible. And I love it because I love being in the Shire. Uh, it's so fun. We're, we're Because in the Two Towers, we're never there. And then we're just briefly there in The Return of the King, you know, when Sam's back there for a little bit and he marries... Uh, what's her name? Sandy or something. Uh, <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring. You know, we, we obviously have the great pr- uh, prologue in the beginning, but that I love. I just love being in the Shire, and I love the journey from the Shire to the start of the Fellowship, to the formation of the Fellowship of the Ring, and then the journey then to Moria and, and going forwards. And it's so so good. I mean, come on, it's, it's Lord of the Rings, kid. Number twenty nine. Inglorious Bastards, released in 2009, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino. How this movie didn't win Best Screenplay in 2009 and lost to Up in the Air, I'll never know. I'll never understand that. This movie, there's just two scenes in this movie. That, the, the opening scene, it should have won just for that. And then the, the bar scene, the underground bar scene, it should have won for that as well. I don't, I don't know how Tarantino didn't win like every award imaginable for this film because it is a masterpiece. I think it's his best made movie in terms of filmmaking and screenwriting. It's he's just at, at his best in this movie. It's it's his masterpiece. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, you've all seen it, but man, I, I still think it's really underappreciated. Obviously, when you look at his filmography, it's incredible. But man, and Glorious Bastards, it should be talked about more. It really should. Number twenty eight, The Shining, released in nineteen eighty, directed by Stanley Kubrick. I told you I'd be back with Kubrick. The Shining is. Such a fascinating film because it's still being studied. It's still being analyzed today. People are still obsessed with this movie. I'm still obsessed with this movie, even though it came out 41 years ago. Seen it a dozen times, probably more. I get something new out of it every time. Uh, Kubrick is just operating on so many subliminal levels in this film. So much hidden imagery. He's just not, whether he's doing it, I think people argue whether he's doing it on purpose. I think everything in the frame, if it's in the frame, it's there on purpose. I think he's made this movie and he's messing with people's minds he's messing with people's heads he completely reimagined the source material from Stephen King and took out all the supernatural elements of it and made it just kind of like this mental breakdown of a family in a secluded area it's really really good number 27 The Kid released in 1921 directed and written by and starring Charles Chaplin probably Charlie Chaplin's best film besides like The Gold Rush um, The Great Dictator City Lights um, because I, I, it's a great story. It's very heartwarming, very tragic, very funny, great acting. Charlie Chaplin, I mean, probably you could argue one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of cinema. You have to argue that. You know, this guy was one of the pioneers in silent film and storytelling. And what he did in the 20s is incredible. And then, unlike many silent film stars, he even survived and his career was still flourishing when talkies started. You know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, stars and starlets in the silent film era, once talkies were being created, their careers kind of ended because once the audience members around the world heard their voices for the first time, despite the fact that they were making movies for a decade or even more, many of them couldn't find work because they heard their voices, audiences heard their voices like, that's what that's what she sounds like? That's what he sounds like? I don't know if I, I don't know if that matches what I had in my head, so I don't think I can watch their movies anymore. A lot of career ended, a lot of careers ended for movie stars when talkies started, but Charlie Chaplin obviously survived because he's the GOAT. 
Number 26, Jaws. Released in 1975, Steven Spielberg directed this brilliant film. And it's so great and ironic because it was supposed to, they, everyone thought it would fail. You know, it had so many troubles filming, so many conflicts, whether it be going over time, going over budget, uh, uh, underestimating the difficulty of filming on water, on boats. But man, what Spielberg pulled off is one of the best monster movies of all time and just a really great adventure film as well. Number 25, we have Blade Runner, released in 1982, directed by Ridley Scott. Why did I put this one ahead of Blade Runner 2049? Because there would be no 2049 without it, obviously. And I think what Ridley Scott did in this time, in this era, practically, was absolutely incredible. You know, I it's hard to pick a, a favorite of mine between the two films because they're so good, both of them, but they're also very different despite the fact that this happened to a lot of the same themes. But I think that, you know, the, the original Blade Runner is just absolutely groundbreaking because I love the noir aspect of it. I love noir films. And Ridley really captured that so well, but in a sci-fi way. But I don't think that the new one really has that noir quality, which doesn't, which isn't a bad thing or a good thing. It has it in a modern way, the modern noir that we're seeing now, you know, with, with, with more colors, obviously. But I love... Love, love what Ridley Scott was able to capture and create with this film because this was another book like Do Androids Dream of Sheep? Um, could you interpret that into a movie? Who knows? Who knew? And Ridley pulled it off because he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time for sure. Number 24, Psycho. Released in 1960. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, I would say this is his best movie. So many firsts in this movie. You know, he, he changed cinema forever by showing murders on camera like this and no one ever done anything like that before showing someone getting stabbed obviously you don't see a knife going in or anything like that but still to show someone being attacked and murdered with a knife you've never really seen that he also uh, the first person to film a toilet flushing but you know psycho really terrified audiences and obviously we're so desensitized today to films like this and violence that it's not hard for us to watch but being in, in a movie theater in 1960 this was a terrifying film for sure Number 23, 12 Angry Men, released in 1957, directed by the great Sidney Lumet, who I think is a very underappreciated filmmaker, not according to like the Academy and everything, but in terms of audiences. I don't think that people under, understand how many great films this guy made. Uh, he was only 34 years old when he made this movie, and somehow this man never won an Oscar besides getting an honorary one. Uh, he passed away, I think, what was it, like 2011 or something like that. And even his last movie... Um, before the Devil Knows You're Dead is such a good movie. He's such a good director. It's incredible what he accomplished with this film in 1957 at the age of just 34 years old. Um, great, great, great script. Great acting. Got to check it out. It's obviously everyone. If you take film history, you're probably going to watch that movie. Number 22, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, released in 1975, directed by Milos Foreman. This is one of the best movies of all time for sure. It's won the big five, the best picture, best screenplay. Uh, best director, best actor, best actress. Um, obviously, Jack Nicholson is phenomenal in this movie. We have one of the great all-time villains in Nurse Ratchet in this as well. And it's a great movie. You know, I love the ambiguous nature about it. I love dealing with the conflicts of mental illness. That's why I think Joker is very similar to, in a way to, you know, obviously Taxi Driver. But also, I think there was a lot of influence from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But I, I love Jack in this role. I think he's probably the greatest actor to ever live. Uh, in my book, and I think that this is probably his best performance. This or the next film, number 21, Chinatown, released in 1974, directed by Roman Polanski. This movie, I think, 
most people still don't appreciate it. There's a lot of films on this, on this list I think that people don't appreciate. You know, if this movie didn't come out the same year as Godfather Part Two in 1974, I think it would have just been a bigger hit and would have had a more impact on the longevity of, of film history. But it's still there, obviously, as, as an important film. Uh, Jack Nicholson as J.J. Gitz, one of my favorite roles he's ever done. Really great, very suspenseful. I love classic noir films, classic crime uh, uh, thrillers, investigatory films. Jack's a PI investigating uh, various cases, and he's so good in this movie. Super charming, super interesting, super funny. Love it. Number 20, No Country for Old Men, released in 2007, directed by the Coen Brothers. I think this is their best film. I think it might be also the best book-to-movie adaptation I've ever seen in my entire life in terms of how close it is to the material. It, because it seems like Cormac McCarthy, a lot of his novels are kind of like made to be made into the movies already. They're very cinematic storytelling in a way. Besides books like Blood Meridian, I don't know how anyone could ever interpret that into a movie. That'd be insane. Um, but No Country for Old Men, incredible book, incredible movie. One of the great movie villains of all time, and Anton Chigurh from Javier Bardem. This movie, you know, one of my favorites, top 10 for me personally. Number 19, The Matrix, released in 1999, directed by the Wachowskis, Lana and Lily. This was groundbreaking, you know. I can't wait to see the new one that comes out. We actually just had the opportunity to go to IMAX last week to watch the original on IMAX. It had never been presented in that format before, so it was absolutely incredible. Um, I, I think this might, might be my most watched movie of all time. It's up there. I get something new out of it every time I watch it. And just the groundbreaking practical and visual effects, but also the abstract nature of the story and the concepts was just so intriguing. I don't think anyone had challenged audiences on this level before in a long time in terms of, you know, the idea of living inside of a computer program, which kind of sort of seems like a reality in the next 20 years for many people. But, you know, The Matrix, we all know it's The Matrix. Neo is the man. Number 18, Goodfellas, released in 1990, directed by Martin Scorsese. His most beloved film, I would say by audiences for sure. This movie is an electric. It's so fun, entertaining. Um, obviously, the the violence, you know, it's it's horribly, it's incredibly violent and gory. But I think Scorsese just does such a tremendous job telling this incredible story. It's so fascinating, despite the fact that a lot of it is obviously sensationalized. We don't know how how accurate all of it is, according to this guy Henry Hill, who just have to go on his word for a lot of it. Um. But Goodfellas, we've all seen this a bunch of times. I've seen it. It's up there in terms of most watched in my life. And I think it's my favorite Scorsese movie I've ever, of all time for sure, too. Number 17, The Exorcist, released in 1973, directed by William Friedkin. This movie changed the game for horror forever. You know, this film is still trying to be made, I think. by We, see, we still see Exorcist movies coming out, exorcisms. We still see the possession movies. I mean, even Hereditary, you could say, was heavily influenced by The Exorcist for sure which I almost made the list. Sorry if it didn't make the list for those who thought it would. Love Ari Aster, though. Um, the Exorcist was groundbreaking. The practical effects, the the makeup, never seen anything like it before. This terrified audiences for sure. Um, I think it's still one of the scariest movies ever made, even though we're in this new, gera, new uh, era of horror and we're all so desensitized to scary movies and gore and stuff like that. But I think still many films try to capture what they captured with The Exorcist. Number 16, Raging Bull, 
released in 1980, directed by Martin Scorsese. Probably the best boxing movie ever made. You could argue the best sports movie ever made. De Niro is absolutely incredible in this movie. This is, I gotta say, I think this is his best role, probably his best performance. He gave it everything he got. This movie also, you know, saved Martin Scorsese's life. He convinced Scorsese to make this movie, despite Scorsese like trying to uh, get over uh, uh, drug addiction at the time. So this movie helped save the greatest, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time's lives, and he made an absolute masterpiece. Um, I love the cinematography, the black and white filmmaking, uh, experimental camera shots. We never, I've never seen anything like the way um, Scorsese captured boxers in the ring. Um, still, no one's ever captured before. You know, the smoke and the ultra slow mo and those those push ins. It's a fascinating film, tragic, tragic story, real life story about Jake LaMotta, rise and fall of a great heavyweight of a great not heavyweight, a great boxing champion. Number fifteen. Raiders of the Lost Ark, released in 1981, directed by Steven Spielberg. This is the ultimate adventure film, and I had to put it on this list because it's obviously the namesake of the show. We love the Indiana Jones films, and Harrison Ford is beyond cool in them as Indy. Raiders of the Lost Ark really started it all, and I think what Spielberg pulled off is maybe the most entertaining film ever made with, with Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's beyond fun. It's something that we've all like, kind of like imagined doing is you know being this being an archaeologist and exploring caves and catacombs and, and tombs and all sorts of stuff. And it's just beyond fun. I love, love this movie. Number fourteen, Alien, released in nineteen seventy nine, directed by Ridley Scott. One of the best horror films ever made. Yes, this is a horror film. One of the best sci fi films ever made. And just one of the best films in general. You know, what he accomplished with Alien in 1979 was as groundbreaking, if not more, than what he did in 1982 with Blade Runner. And Sigourney Weaver is iconic, one of my favorite um, movie heroes ever in this role as Ripley. And got her as a Funko Pop right here on the desk. And, you know, Alien's incredible. I don't think the, the creature design of the Xenomorph will ever be topped. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in my entire life, especially the first time I saw it as a kid. Had nightmares about it, and it's it's so incredible. The production design of this film, the story, everything. Number 13, Seven Samurai, released in 1954, directed by Akira Kurosawa. And the first time I actually saw this movie was shown by Anthony years ago. And like it was like 11 o'clock one night, and we were like in our early 20s, so we stayed up late all the time. He's like, hey, man, you want to watch this really old samurai movie? I'm like, hell yeah, I want to watch a really old samurai movie. Never seen it before. And he puts it on, and like two hours in, I'm like, hey, this movie's incredible but it's like 2 a.m almost like how much longer is left he's like oh there's still like an hour and a half left this is like a three and a half hour movie so when you put it on you gotta be aware of that but it's incredible this was like i know everyone loves the avengers and the team-up movies and everything this was like the original team-up movie you know it's it's like the original it's like the avengers but old school but better obviously because it's kurosawa and samurai and you know this movie influenced film and still has an influence on film you know the idea the concept of the jedi in star wars are based off samurai and akira kurosawa movies um seven samurai it's very fun great cinematography great action incredible filmmaking super good it's incredible number 12 the good the bad and the ugly released in 1966 directed by sergio leone this is the best western ever made clint eastwood as is the man, as this drifter, as this anti-hero, man with no name. Um, and I love how Tarantino just plays with the concept and making fun of it in 
in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by paying homage to it. You know how he has to go to Italy. Got to go to Italy and star star in spaghetti westerns. <laughs> this is the star of spaghetti westerns. This trilogy and the good and the bad and the ugly is one of the greatest films of all time. The greatest western of all time. The trilogy in general, but I think just like the final duel at the end of this film is so incredible. It's so iconic. And Ennio Morricone, shout out to that man. Rest in peace. One of the greatest composers to ever live. His music from this these films are still used today all the time. Number 11, Schindler's List. Released in 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. A very powerful film about a very important and tragic moment in history. Um, similar, to, obviously, to The Pianist in terms of what's going on. But, you know, to actually have a film that entirely takes place inside of Auschwitz or concentration camp. It's it's so hard to watch. This movie's intense. It's long, too. So you will be emotionally drained at the end of this film, but it's important to watch films like this. It's important to understand history visually with movies like this. And it's incredible that Spielberg made this in Jurassic Park and they released both in 1993. So it shows you a testament to how talented of a filmmaker he is. But to pull off a movie like Schindler's List, you know, True story, uh, Schindler played by Liam Neeson. And we have an incredibly horrific villain played by Ray Fiennes in this film. This movie's tragic, it's powerful, and it's incredible. It really is. Number 10, There Will Be Blood, released in 2007, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This is PTA's best movie. Um, I don't think there's any denying it. What he created with this film is absolutely incredible. And not to mention it has one of the greatest performances in acting history from Daniel Day-Lewis's Daniel Plainview. And, I mean, this is one of my top ten favorite movies personally as well. And, you know, There Will Be Blood is iconic. And I think Daniel Plainview is one of the most interesting characters ever put on film. And the story of this man who does everything he can to win and defeat people he considers competition in the world of oil. And it's a fascinating character study. Number nine, Taxi Driver, released in 1976, directed by Martin Scorsese. This movie was way ahead of its time. Uh, its original reception was negative because people, I don't think they were ready for it. And it's the ultimate character study, Travis Bickle, and masterful filmmaking, uh, it's hypnotic, it's mesmerizing. You know, you, you know, you feel like this. you're in this, in this dreamlike world when you're watching Travis Bickle, like you're there with him. And I think that that's the genius of Martin Scorsese is to make you feel like you're in the movie. And um, Travis Bickle is a fascinating, interesting character to follow. Number eight, Metropolis, released in 1927, directed by Fritz Lang. This movie, it still blows my mind what Fritz was able to pull off in 1927 with the practical effects of this movie. And this film is still relevant today in terms of the concepts and ideas of classism, of a wealth gap, of... The wealthy versus the poor and the control that they have in a society. And I also love uh, messianic stories. That's why I love like, like The Matrix and stuff so much like that. And this film has that as well. And it's just it's just an absolutely groundbreaking, incredible movie, visually stunning. And when you watch it, if you've never seen it, watch it and think in your head, they made this in 1927. What the hell? How did they do that? Number seven, I have Citizen Kane, released in 1941, directed by Orson Welles. And this movie... So ahead of its time, Orson Welles, such an articulate, intelligent guy, an incredible filmmaker, visionary filmmaker. And actually, I found this really great quote about Citizen Kane when he was, that he gave during an interview. And I just this is how I want to talk about the, this movie. 
I thought you could do anything with a camera that the eye could do or the imagination could do. And if you come up from the bottom in the film business, you're taught all the things that the cameraman doesn't want to attempt for fear he will be criticized for having failed. And in this case, I had a cameraman who didn't care if he was criticized if he failed. And I didn't know that there were things you couldn't do. So anything I could think of in my dreams, I attempted to photograph. So this was a groundbreaking film in terms of cinematography of experimental things that we see every day today in films and modern filmmaking. But at the time, Orson Welles revolutionized filmmaking with those with those styles and concepts of cinematography. And it's a groundbreaking movie. Couldn't believe, can't believe he made this. Started direct, started and directed in this in his twenties, which is absurd. I think he was twenty six. Number six, The Godfather Part Two, released in nineteen seventy four. Now, when most people think of great origin stories in film, they think of you know Batman Begins, they think of Spider Man, but I think of Godfather Part Two and the origin story of Don Vito Corleone because it's absolutely incredible. I love this movie because I love being in Italy. I love watching the rise of Vito from a child to his adolescence to adulthood and watch how he became Godfather, how he became Don Vito Corleone because obviously the Godfather is first and he's a fully formed character. He's the head of the crime family. But I love watching De Niro as young Vito going through, you know, coming to America in his youth and then rising up and becoming a hero to those around him in his neighborhood and then obviously becoming the Godfather. And this is an incredible film because we also have the other storyline of Michael Corleone as he's taken over the family business and becomes a very villainous, powerful man and corrupt with the power that his father left to him. It's incredible, incredible filmmaking. Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, one of the best ever. All right, number five, Pulp Fiction, released in 1994, directed by Quentin Tarantino. I, like I said, I think Inglourious Bastards is his best made movie, but I think Pulp Fiction is Tarantino's best movie. This was a groundbreaking film, obviously. More groundbreaking than his film Reservoir Dogs. You know, this changed cinema forever. You know, no one had ever seen anything like this. The storytelling devices of, of different chapters happening at different points of time in the story, going backwards and forwards, having an ensemble cast where each one has their own fascinating little story and storylines connected and connecting all those dots together. So incredible. Great performances, obviously. John Travolta and Sam L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, um, Bruce Willis. Such a, such a good movie. Incredible script. Man, what a, what a film. This is one of those movies that, you know, I think this when I was had the biggest impact on my life when I was a kid, for sure. Number four, The Tree of Life, released in 2011, directed by Terrence Malick. I think that most people, they don't understand this film when they watch it. That's why it's got pretty low ratings, it's like six point something on IMDb, which blows my mind because this movie is one of the best ever made. You know, the concepts are huge and abstract. And what Terrence Malick does with a lot of his films, like especially like in Days of Thunder, is he's telling you a story, but he's also using things like nature as a storytelling device. And Tree of Life, he's telling you could say the story of humanity and the story of life and what is existence, what is life, where do we come from. That's why there's so many great um, uh, sequences in, in filmmaking shots of you know uh, cells and, and space and the cosmos, nature. He's, he's he's connecting all the dots of what makes life life. Why are we here? You know, what is the point of humanity? And then he grounds it also in this very 
real story of a family and the the trials and tribulations of of a family how we all go through things together and it's not always happy it's not always a happy story but you know i think it's such an important film and it's the most explorative in terms of what is the meaning of life and like where do we come from number three silence of the lambs released in 1991 directed by jonathan demi this also is a big five winner won best actor best actress Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Screenplay, adapted from novel of the same name. Jonathan Demme is a masterful filmmaking. It was unfortunately he passed away too soon, I think. And you know, Silence of the Limbs is his best work of art, and gave us two of my favorite acting performances of all time, from Jodie Foster as Clarice, and then Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who has played the role multiple times now. And Silence of the Lambs is truly, truly a hor- horrific film in terms of the nature of what's going on, but also beautiful in its filmmaking and storytelling. And I think it's just masterful in every way. Number two, The Godfather, released in 1972, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Incredible crime story, incredible film about an aging patriarch of an Italian crime family. You know, a war among these Italian families is going on. And the rise of Michael Corleone, who, you know, rejects his family. You know, he's kind of like this prince, but prince of the crime world. But doesn't want to be a part of it at first. And at first, and, and what, what leads him to, you know, be accepting that and accepting his role is, you know, the the, the attempt on his father's life and wanting to protect his father. And, you know, uh, Vito wants his son Michael because he knows he's the best of all of his children. He's the smartest. He wants him to be politician you know a governor maybe a president one day who knows um but eventually michael ends up you know taking the ranks of the family after obviously the death of sonny and everything but you know the godfather i'm not gonna i shouldn't get too deep on the review of it but the godfather it's incredible filmmaking in every single way production acting screenplay um cinematography it's a genius film francis ford coppola what he made with the Godfather Part 1, Godfather Part 2, absolutely sensational. Uh, Part 3, it's pretty good. Uh, Doesn't even come close to the first two, I think. But number two all time on my list is The Godfather. Now, what could be James's number one greatest film of all time? Hmm, I wonder what it could be. Let's think. What's he leaving out? What are are some great films is he leaving out? Is he leaving out, like, uh, Infinity War? (laughs) Is he leaving out? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't put any Marvel movies on the list, guys. Um, what's he, what's, what's he leaving out? What could it be? Number one, greatest movie of all time, in my opinion. 2001 Space Odyssey, released in 1968, directed by Stanley Kubrick. I think this is his best work. Execution-wise, I don't think I've ever seen a film made as well as 2001 Space Odyssey, especially for what he did in 1970s, I mean, 1968 with the practical effects. It's absolutely mind-blowing because obviously we all seen, we all saw Star Wars. You know, Star Wars came out in 1977, so we've seen all the miniature work and everything done with that. But this was in 1968. This is nine years before that, and technology still wasn't as advanced as it became in 1977. But Stanley Kubrick still somehow pulled off one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life with 2001 Space Odyssey. I adore this film. I get something new out of it every time. And it's also, the concepts are super far out. You know, it's, it's very complex. It's a, It's all about... What what is the meaning of life and where do we come from? You know, aliens are, are aliens the reason why we exist, or are aliens going to help us get to the next plane in our life, the next form of evolution? You know, the Star Child at the end of the film. Are we be accept, being accepted into this 
intergalactic society now? Are we, are, is humanity ready? And, you know, I love the opening of this film where it talks, it shows the evolution, you could say, the, the starting point of apes becoming humans or what leads to that. What's the catalyst? The monolith is the catalyst of that. The, the aliens put this monolith there to create curiosity in these apes to get their brains working, to think differently, and, you know, create tools eventually and stuff like that. So that's the point of the monolith. I think a lot of people interpret the monolith as they touch it and they get a, a power in their head. The monolith is, is there just to create curiosity in my opinion, which sparks the, the, the ideas and creation of intelligence and evolution. So it's, it, it's so fascinating when you think of like what, what humanity will become with the star child is the equivalent of what apes became when we became humans or those, those monkeys, what they became when, they, when we became humans. So it's just so, so fascinating to think what the next stage of evolution would be thanks to these aliens. But I could go on about 2001 Space Odyssey all day, but I think just the, the, the effects are incredible. The story is incredible. The villain of it being an AI supercomputer in hell. Super fascinating. So well done. Stanley Kubrick, I think my favorite filmmaker, I think the best filmmaker probably of all time. It's hard to pick one. There's so many great ones, but I, I really hope you enjoyed this list. Uh, sorry if you, there are movies on here that you thought should have been that are on your list, but hey, I will just tell you that no list is wrong. It's all subjective if you look at it, and it's up to you what you put in the top 100. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned into this entire episode to find out what my top 100 greatest movies of all time we're hope you have a great week and check out the latest episodes we got coming raiders of the lost podcast is a mirror image production sound mixing done by jacob kosler opening music by chase jack